What happens on the soccer pitch doesn't stay there. Sport doesn't just reflect our cultural attitudes, it shapes them, says Michaela McKenzie, a former senior editor at Glamour magazine and a journalist who uses sport as a way to keep score on the gender gap. Before the US Women's World Cup team arrived here, it reached a deal for better pay, like the men's team, but women are still penalised for pregnancy. They are sexualised as athletes and undervalued, says Michaela. Her new book looks at how women's sport can challenge outdated attitudes and help inspire female leaders of the future. It's called Money, Power, Respect, How Women in Sports Are Shaping the Future of Feminism. And Michaela McKenzie joins me now. Hello. Hi, Jesse. Great to be with you. First of all, how was that uh, Aussie game last night? Did you watch it? <laughs> you know, I caught the highlights of it. Um, well, I caught the last half of it this morning and the highlights of the first half, which were just incredible. Um, I think that was, you know, if anything, this has been the World Cup of upsets. Um, and that really kind of put the icing on the cake. So it was exciting to see, um, you know, just the level of talent in this World Cup. It's just nothing seems to be predictable because everybody's game is so, so strong this yeah. year. And for listeners, that wasn't a completely random question. I happen to know that Michaela's husband is Australian, so he's been uh, <laughs> uh, forcing her to watch the Matildas. And then I guess you're keeping an eye on uh, USA-Portugal. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's... Um... You know, we've long been an Australian-US sport household here. So we've had cricket on all week and uh, the World <laughs> Cup games. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, I imagine the uh, the Ashes might just about break up a marriage to an American. You've done very well. Um, <laughs> so you've written about all sorts of women's issues. But is, is, is there something about the fight for equal pay by female athletes? Is there something about that that really gets under your skin? There is. I, I started reporting on the U.S. women's national team um, in their road to the World Cup back in 2019 when I was a senior editor at Glamour magazine and, you know, was kind of a casual sports fan up until that point, you know, would tune in for these big global events like the World Cup and the Olympics every four years. Um, but it wasn't something that I was necessarily tracking every game. Um, but what really stuck with me about this team is that you know, number one, they had this incredibly long and robust history of fighting for equality. Um, you know, so that went back to the team being founded in the late 80s when they were wearing men's hand-me-down uniforms Gosh. and playing for a podium. So, you know, there's just been this really sort of under-recognized legacy of advocacy in this team for decades. And the more I learned about it, the more I realized, you know, these are the fights that are paying out, playing out in, in nearly every workplace around the country and in many workplaces around the world. You know, there's not a single woman I know who hasn't experienced so many of the same frustrations that these women were talking about on this global stage. Um, and I think there's something really special and important about that. You know, sport is this incredible tool to shape culture. Um, and I think when we have these major activist moments happening in sports, they really resonate um, beyond just people who are sports fans. For New Zealanders watching the game tonight between the USA and Portugal, um, just so we understand what the US women's team has gone through, can you give us a kind of a the short version of their fight for equal pay? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like I said, I mean, this is a decades long fight, um, but it sort of formally began in 2016 when several of the players filed a complaint with the Equal Employment and Opportunities Commission here in the U.S. Um, and that was essentially an investigation that would allow them to then sue their employer for pay discrimination. Um, so the EEOC ruled in their favor, saying that they could sue, um, which is what they did in 2019 on International Women's Day. Um, And, you know, that day was significant for them to choose to file their lawsuit, because I think it really made the connection very clear and explicit that this was not just about, you know, a pay dispute between a group of athletes and their federation. This for these players was really about a broader push for women's equality and and really kind of getting the whole world in on this rallying cry um, to be paying attention to gender equality in their workplaces and to be joining this fight. Given how successful they've been, I think they're the most successful international women's team in the world, four World Cups, four Olympic gold medals. Were you surprised that actually their fight for better pay was quite protracted and at times quite ugly? (laughs) You know... That's a good question. I don't know if surprised is the word that I would use. You know, when you've been reporting on gender equality for a certain amount of time, I think nothing really surprises you anymore. Um, But I, I was surprised at certain points at, you know, how how this fight really brought out some of the most, you know, deeply buried and upsetting biases we have. Um, and really named them and made them explicit, you know, as part of the many, many legal briefs that were filed um, in this case, you know, U.S. soccer came out at one point and actually tried to use supposed biological inferiority of the women as an argument for why they shouldn't have to pay them the same as the men's team. Um, You know, they have since apologized for that. There was a huge outcry. The president resigned. There's new leadership now. Um, but, you know, I think that that really, you know, it gets to the point of what so many organizations are dealing with is this really sort of deep seated bias um, that one group is less valuable than another. Outside of soccer, um, basketball, would you mind telling us a bit about Waitgate? Yes, definitely. Um, so Waitgate refers to... Um, the NCAA March Madness Tournament. So, you know, here in the U.S., um, college basketball and in Division One colleges, there's a huge tournament every spring um, where all the top men's teams, all the top women's teams compete. Um, and there have just been extremely vast inequalities between what that player experience has looked like between the men's and women's tournaments, what the marketing has looked like, what the overall investment in each of those Um, tournaments has looked like. And this kind of all came to a head uh, in 2020 when the, you know, players were playing in a bubble because of COVID. There was sort of all eyes on these very specifically controlled sites. And the (laughs) photo went viral of the women's weight room for the tournament, which was literally, you know, one rack of free free weights that you could have bought, you know, for $400 on Amazon and a stack of yoga mats where the men had this, you know, hotel ballroom sized state of the art training facility with every top of the line piece of equipment that you could ever dream of. Um, And I think, you know, that really sort of resonated with people because it struck this chord of, 
okay, even if I do believe that the women's tournament isn't as good or doesn't bring as, in as many viewers, it's not that much worse. You know, there's no way that this discrepancy can possibly be an accurate depiction um, of what's happening here. So I think that really struck a chord with people and, and it helped to eventually, you know, drive a lot of change, which is exciting. Yeah, because there is an argument, and for some listeners, it'll be a compelling argument that women's sport doesn't bring in as much money. So it's it's fair, it's it's reasonable that they shouldn't be paid as much. But actually, that's with whatever you think of that argument. Um, that's an example of underinvestment. That's uh, that's a way of saying we don't even want women's sport to reach the same level of popularity, and we're not going to invest in it. Absolutely. I mean, I think that is really one of the biggest issues here. You know, there are all of these arguments about why women don't deserve to be paid equally. And, you know, one of the biggest ones is exactly that. It's that, well, they don't draw as big of an audience. So therefore, you know, a broadcaster or a federation isn't making as much money from hosting a women's tournament. So therefore they shouldn't get paid as much money. Um, and on the surface, I think that seems really logical and reasonable. But when you sort of, you know, take a step back and look at the broader picture of what's happening, a, you know, you can't expect two teams to perform at the same level when you're giving one absolute state-of-the-art resources and endless funding and you're you know basically telling another like good luck to you out there we're not going to help you out at all um you know we see that across sports and i think that is starting to change and as it's changing and as women's sports do get more investment, um, the product is improving. Viewership is improving. I mean, this World Cup is a perfect example. This is the most competitive Women's World Cup that we've ever seen. And that is a direct result of the fact that federations around the world have made a lot of changes in the last four years. Uh, about a month ago, ahead of this tournament, I spoke to Wendy Sharp, who uh, debuted for our national football team when she was 16 in 1980. Mm. Uh, she's got the best scoring rate of any uh, of our um, female players. <laughs> but when she was playing, she had to breastfeed on the sideline at halftime. <laughs> there was no, there was no um, structure set up for a mum playing football. Um, her mother would, would meet her there, she'd feed her baby, then she'd run back on. It's quite incredible. And so much has changed since then. But in a way, so much hasn't changed. You describe the motherhood penalty in sport. Can you tell me a bit about the price that female athletes pay for having children? Yeah, I mean, for so many years, we've had women athletes speaking out about this intense pressure they feel to either retire or start families um, because they're just not supported in being able to have a family and continue playing. I think part of that, most of it is the very, very real um, actual structural support that is lacking. You know, you, you talk about Wendy breastfeeding on the sidelines and, and not having a place to be able to feed her baby while being a working professional. I mean, that's so upsetting to hear that story. But also, again, it's not surprising because I think the reality is is still that for so many women, um, you know, in sports and outside of sports. But I, I think there's also been this really pervasive cultural attitude that women athletes are going to be worthless and won't be able to perform at the same level after going through pregnancy or becoming mothers. Um, and I think, you know, that has really shaped the way that 
federations and sponsors have treated women athletes, you know, literally devaluing them at that moment in their careers and sort of prematurely ending their careers. But what we're seeing now, um, because so many athletes are speaking out and really pushing back against these stereotypes, is that that's not true at all. I mean, on one hand, there's some exciting research and data coming out on the physiological side that, you know, shows that some of the physical changes that occur during pregnancy and postpartum can actually be athletically beneficial, but we're also, you know, seeing what happens on the mental side. I spoke to so many women for my book who said that, you know, as an athlete, one of the most dangerous things that can happen to you is, you know, you sort of get in that downward mental spiral of ruminating over a bad, you know, shot at practice or something that happened in a game where you feel you messed up. um, And that can really sort of bring you down. And so many of the athletes I spoke to who are moms said, having a kid is such a, has a really protective effect against that because, you know, you, can't ruminate about something that went wrong in practice. You have to go home and show up and be there for your kid who's just so excited yeah. that you're their mom. Um, so, you know, they that was something that came up really frequently. I was surprised um, by how often they talked about that and how how great it was ultimately for their mental game. Yeah, US soccer has made quite a significant change there, offering six months of paid parental leave to all national team parents. It's quite a game changer, eh? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's something, you know, they've they've offered support for moms on the field for years, and, and that's a result of the advocacy of these players. Um, but I think that is part of the reason why this team has been so dominant for so many years, because they're not ending the careers of their players prematurely, you know, just because they decide to have a family, which is, you know, obviously what happens for male athletes. They're so many of the greatest male athletes of our time are fathers. And, you know, that's never even a thought or that's never something that's at all discussed yeah. when we talk about their careers. Um, so I think that standard is is starting to change for women because federations are starting to understand that it's in their best interest um, to be supporting women athletes throughout every stage of their careers. I'm speaking to Michaela McKenzie. She is a former senior editor at Glamour magazine. Her book is called Money, Power, Respect, How Women in Sports Are Shaping the Future of Feminism. And obviously you talk about the future in the book, but you talk about the past as well and some of the big names uh, that have made an impact in the space. Uh, None bigger than Billie Jean King. Was she one of the first to really stand up and, and do something about money and power in sports from a female perspective? Yeah, I I think she was one of the first with a real platform. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the the history of advocacy in women's sports is as long as women's sports has existed. Um, But I think Billie Jean was such a game changer because she had a platform to speak from. And she was extremely aware of that. You know, in all my conversations with her over the years, that's always something that she talked about is that she knew she had an audience And she knew it was her responsibility not to lose that audience um, and to be able to get this message across in a way that, you know, was going to draw people in instead of alienating people. I think it's remarkable that she was doing this work in a very different time culturally. You know, this was a time when feminism was seen as just a bunch of angry women and something that nobody wanted to be associated with. Um, and she really walked that line, I think, 
very delicately, but she she's very, very clear. And, you know, I think her legacy is so important because she was so clear that we need culture change um, to see real lasting change. It's not enough to change laws. You have to really change hearts and minds. We talked about athletes being sexualized earlier. I mentioned that. And um, some people will point out, well, hey, this happens to male athletes as well here in New Zealand. Uh, we have Dan Carter modelling jockey underwear of former All Black. David Beckham did the same thing. I wonder, though, mm -hmm. if, if that actually <laughs> is a case in point. I wonder if that actually demonstrates pretty well the different way that is received when it's a male athlete as compared to a female athlete. Absolutely. I mean, I think the way it's received is the whole point. I, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about this and, and reporting on it for my book. And where I landed with it is, you know, it makes sense that we talk about athletes' bodies. Their body is their job. And I think there's a very natural human response to that in, in wanting to talk about their strength and, you know, really kind of breaking their bodies down in a way that you, of course, never would for some professional in another industry. Mm. Uh, the difference is when we see David Beckham or another male athlete in an underwear ad, I think the majority of people's response to that is, wow, he's so strong. And they think of him as a better athlete. <laughs> yeah. Whereas, you know, with women, it becomes this discussion of, oh, she shouldn't be taken seriously because she's, you know, appearing in Sports Illustrated in a bikini. She's not a serious competitor. Um, which, yeah, I mean, that's that's a double standard, I think. Anna Kornikova faced that, I think. I mean, she, she didn't win a lot of titles, but she was in the top 20 um, for a lot of her She was a fantastic tennis player, but, um, I mean, that I, I think that happened with her. You mentioned another one, maybe not quite as familiar a name here in New Zealand, Lindsay Vaughn. Did she face a, a, quite an uphill battle for media coverage that didn't focus on what she looked like? Yeah, one of the things, so she, you know, was world champion skier. She was the winningest woman skier until Michaela Schifrin just very recently um, broke that record. Um, and she talked about how, you know, she felt people thought that she was famous just because she was good looking and not because she was this, you know, incredible world champion athlete. Um, and I think that is really difficult to deal with, you know, this idea that no matter how competent you are, that's going to be undermined by people wanting to talk about your body or your personal life, um, implying that that has something to do with your success instead of your skill. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think she is really, you know, very emblematic of what a lot of women athletes face. What effect does the sexualization of athletes have on them and on girls who, who might want to pursue sport at a high level? And does your view of it change if they are, quote, in control of that image, if they choose that part of the way they're going to make money and, and build their profile is by having a sexy Instagram account to go with the great work they're doing on the field or on the court? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's such a nuanced question. I, and I don't think yeah, I don't think there's one solid answer. I mean, that that answer is going to be different for everybody. I think, you know, control is obviously so important. I think, you know, women should be allowed to control their own image and be portrayed however they want to be portrayed. However, we also exist in a society where the way a woman is portrayed does have 
you know, unfortunately, all of these other things layered onto it. Um, so, you know, I, I cite an example in my book of Serena Williams appearing on a Sports Illustrated cover in a very sexualized way. And the creative direction for that cover photo shoot was all her idea. Um, and I think that's awesome. I, I think she really owns her sexuality in a way that, you know, we don't get to see women doing a lot. Um, but of course, that cover received a lot of backlash and criticism because, you know, they're saying, well, she's a professional athlete. She shouldn't be sexy. Um, so, yeah, I think there's a ton of nuance there. I think what is important is that women are given the agency in deciding how they want to be portrayed, as opposed to sort of this older model of advertising and marketing, which I think we're starting to move away from a bit, um, in which, you know, marketers were basically saying the only way anyone's going to care about you is if you are portrayed in a sexualized way. You say that if women get more respect for their sporting achievements, it will seep into other areas of women's lives. What leads you to that conclusion? So many things. Um, there is So on one hand, there's a lot of actual data that looks at the professional outcomes of girls who have access to sports. Um, 94% of C-suite executives in the United States, female C-suite executives, played sports. Um, huh. They also make more money. So I don't think that there is any doubt about the connection between access to sports participation and, you know, the development of leadership skills and team building and all of these things that really help to make you successful in the professional sphere. Um, there's also a lot of data that looks at sort of the personal confidence aspect of it, you know. Girls who have access to sports are more body positive. You know, they have a better body image growing up as opposed to girls who don't have that access. And I think those things are really radical. You know, pretty much every woman that I spoke to for the book, whether she was a professional athlete or, you know, a academic or a woman in business, all had some connection to sport in their life um, when they had played, you know, from girlhood to their collegiate years. Um, but they all spoke about this idea that sports is really a place where you get to try and fail in a safe environment. It's a place where you get to push yourself past the limits you thought you could achieve. It's a place where you get to set goals and you get support from a team or from coaches to achieve those goals. I mean, it's really just this incredibly fertile ground for learning what you're capable of. Um, and I think that that really changes a person's psyche in a way that we don't necessarily, you know, often give a lot of credit to. Will USA make it five World Cup wins this year? <laughs> We're hoping so in this house. Um, you know, the US is definitely heavily favored to win the World Cup this year, which would be a historic achievement. It would be three World Cup titles in a row, which has never been done before in soccer. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I said at the top of the call, I think this is the World Cup of upsets, if nothing else. You know, the the depth of talent is just so remarkable in this competition. I really think anything could happen. So it's it's definitely um, every game is going to be a nail biter, I think. Love to chat to you today. The book is called Money, Power, Respect, How Women in Sports Are Shaping the Future of Feminism. And I've been talking to Michaela McKenzie. Thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much, Jesse. Great to be here.